Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, terrific uh, to be here in this fabulous new hang in Elderwing of our Australian collection. Uh, so it's um, a great pleasure to be talking today about Len Lai to Salava. And it's in my experience, I've seen it many, many times, but I've never actually seen it in uh, conjunction and juxtaposed with such um, wonderful Indigenous works that relate directly to the content. So, uh, so just, I, I'll talk directly about this work and then I'll spin out into a much larger story about Len Lai uh, and where he's come from and uh, what he did. Uh, an extraordinary pioneer artist that um, occasionally is claimed as an Australian artist, uh, but defiantly claimed as a New Zealand artist by New Zealanders, also an American citizen, also lived in London for 20 years. So he really is a global citizen at a time uh, when that was quite an adventurous mode. So, uh, so a, a, a little bit about um, uh, this work in particular, and then I'll come back to the story of Len Lai. So, uh, firstly, uh, I wanted to make reference to, so Len Lai ended up in Australia, and that's a fantastic story. Len Lai ended up, I'm used to giving a three hour lecture on Len Lai, so we'll see how we go for 20 minutes. Um, Len Lai, ended up in Australia for a couple of years in the 20s. Uh, he, and at this period, to, just to sort of contextualise at this period, he was born in 1980. Sorry, he died in 1980. He was born in, in 1901. Uh, and he, this is a picture of him as a youngster. I'm going to be doing lots of show and tell, right? So this is a picture of him as a very young man. He studied, uh, he studied um, graphic design in Wellington and then was very captured by the idea of the Pacific Islands. In 1913, um, Totem and Taboo was written by Sigmund Freud. He was obsessed with this book, copied it out by hand, and this was pre-photocopying, free internet, of course, would go to the library, obsessed with um, Sigmund Freud, copied out by hand, and at the same time would be looking at Maori sculptures and, uh, and Pacific Island works in the collections in Wellington. And his notebooks are very beautiful because they're juxtaposed with these texts that he would correct. He corrected Freud a lot. So he corrected Freud because, of course, the title of that book was with Totem in Taboo, um, Analysis of uh, Psychic States with uh, Savages and Neurotics. Wonderful title that we'd never, never approve of today. But um, so in interspersed with his, his, um, his, um, his analysis of Freud were these beautiful drawings of uh, tupper cloth and sculptures, headdresses, etc. So he decided to go to the Pacific Islands. He went to Tonga, he went to Fiji, he lived in Samoa for quite a while until his intimacy with the lovely red-headed daughter of the, of the local priest caused ire and he was um, excommunicated, kicked off, deported, uh, and he was deported to the closest city, which was Sydney. 
that's how we ended up in Sydney. So um, in Sydney, he was very fascinated, and I'll just uh, I'll move to the next image to show you. And um, here is um, yeah, okay, no, not working. Was it work? It was working over here. Yep. Oh, yep, there it is. Okay. Looks like I'll be talking over here. So, um, and there he is much later in life with one of his kinetics. Maybe if you can hold it for me, Annika. Thanks. One of his kinetics later in life, but behind a tupper cloth. So he was uh, fascinated by uh, Pacific Island um, imagery. And then when he came to... Uh, came to Sydney, he immediately became quite fascinated by, uh, the, uh, by Aboriginal works and particularly he, there was a, a book by, um, what was it called, The Native Tribes of Australia, The Witchetty Grub Totem by Spencer and Gillen and this was a book that he was looking at in the 1920s. And he began this idea, he was looking, previously he was thinking about motion. When you think, this, his, his young guy um, in, his, in his teens living in a lighthouse, his father was an intense um, musician, he was very highly strung, uh, very peripatetic, he lived in many houses, but the most memorable was living in a lighthouse uh, down in, in Christchurch. So this ferocious winds, wild landscape, and he was fascinated by the clouds, as he called, scudding across the sky. And so the idea of movement became incredibly important to him. And at the same time, he was reading, a little later, he was reading Freud. And so this idea of old brain, new brain is something that he invented. He invented many terminologies throughout his life, and perhaps the most famous being individual happiness now. He said people are always working out what they're fighting for. What are we, what, what's something positive that's worth fighting for? Um, and so he came up with this theory of individual happiness now, later in life. But in the early stages, he was particularly thinking about old brain, new brain, and particularly looking at indigenous material. This is a time when indigenous material was only seen anthropologically, so it was really radical at the time, his perception and his respect. In fact, he wore throughout his whole life, uh, that we'll see in another image. Um, you can see it there, actually. You can see there, in that image, he's wearing a hay tiki that he carved himself when he was a young man in his 20s. And he wore that every day of his life until his death in 1980. And that work is part um, of the collection down at, um, in New Plymouth at the Len Lye Centre. So here he was in, in um, Sydney looking again at uh, anthropological um, uh, collections, collections of Aboriginal and Melanesian, as well as Polynesian work. And he started this one of thousands and thousands of stop-frame animation drawings um, that became Tusalava. In 1926, he was here for about two or three years, in 1926, he illegally bought a, uh, a steam, um, um, you know, the people that coal shovelers 
pass, so he bought the, uh, the, the ticket from a coal shoveler and worked his way on a steam ship to London where he immediately fell in with the uh, Seven and Five group in London and fell in with Robert Graves and Laura Riding, did beautiful book covers, uh, started to meet uh, other artists who were thinking about surrealism at the time and in fact showed what he started with his very early photograms, which is a radical use of light. So here is an artist fascinated by movement, by indigenous practice, by the idea of old brain, new brain, this merging between male and female, and a merging between technology and the organic. He was always flipping with this idea of these polar opposites and how they might form something new in the world today. He was also a very um, ambitious and, and adventurous young man. Uh, immediately fell in love with a woman called Jane and uh, was, was ended up living on a barge in the, in the Thames. And there he drew and drew and drew and drew, informed by his time in the Pacific, informed by his time in New Zealand, and deeply informed by his time, in fact, here in, in Sydney for a couple of years. Um, and then he eventually, in, um, in 29, was the same year it was presented, so, you know, he, was, he didn't leave here until 26. So it took about four or five years to make this work. Thousands and thousands of hand-drawn um, drawings are about this big, okay? And, uh, and in this work, there's a lot going on. We've presented it once at the Len Lai Centre, uh, projected on a large scale with a, uh, a wonderful DJ from um, New York, DJ Olive, working on his, um, on, with his, his vinyls. So you can, it, it's sort of an incredibly contemporary image is one that is, um, is uh, very historically informed. But there is a sort of a darkness to it. Roger Fry saw it exhibited at the, at the Film Society in 29. It was quite um, disturbing for a lot of the audiences in London at the time. Uh, and it was seen, and, and his comment, rather than giving an explanation, Len Lai said, you have to see it to believe it. And that's in fact true at the time, when you can, you can imagine too a soundtrack, can't you? There was a soundtrack um, very early on, it was lost, and many artists over the years have uh, been inspired by this work to create soundtracks. In fact, we did a big exhibition at Gavette Brewster where we had three different composers had composed soundtracks over the years. And the work completely changes when you have a different soundtrack. And one of those was commissioned by, um, by the British Film Institute. This work is collected by various galleries around the world, including the British Film Institute, and of course, um, the, it's, it's held primarily in the collection at Gavette Brewster. So back to Len Lai, so he's in, New, in, in London, he's showing uh, also uh, uh, at, the, at the Surrealist Exhibition, the International Surrealist Exhibition, he exhibited uh, there with, um, with Miro and Duchamp and others. He was uh, quite, it was quite a sensational, a, a small number of works in that exhibition 
uh, not the film, but, uh, but certainly the uh, photograms. But he's also known to have declared himself not to be a surrealist when he was hassled by journalists at the time. So he was happy to exhibit with them. However, he defined himself as being more independent than that. So this, his time in London continued during the war. Um, in the 30s, uh, he ended up working for the uh, propaganda department, the Ministry of Information and Propaganda, making hilarious films um, which were instructing people to, uh, to do certain things like reuse metal or grow your own vegetables or don't eat meat. But they were hilarious and then, then there still hasn't been the exhibition of these films that he was commissioned for by the propaganda. I just can't imagine the Ministry of Defence in Australia commissioning a radical artist to make these hilarious films. So uh, at the same time, he did films for Shell. He did films for um, Imperial Airways. And this is really how he made his name as a radical filmmaker, because these films then were distributed um, around the world and shown before movies. So you'd go to the cinema and you'd see a three-minute ad, the way you see you know, an ad for ice cream now, but it'd actually be a Len Lai film. And uh, there's a wonderful story where he was um, working with Hitchcock and um, so they tested it out on a on, um, couple of hundred people and his scene which involved fire um, um, in the Hitchcock film was screamed and everybody in the cinema screamed and ran from the cinema because it was seen as too real and Hitchcock cut that out of the scene sadly. But he did work with Hitchcock, he did work with John Gilgood, he was working with um, an extraordinary number of uh, dynamic uh, creatives at the time in London. Uh, so these films like A Colour Box, Colour Cry, Trade Tattoo, um, I'll just show you some of the stills from there. Yep, that's, that's, um, uh, that's uh, Colour Cry uh, and these transparencies, this is looking at um, Trade Tattoo and in fact, Trade Tattoo ended up being, uh, he, he also did a big commission for Chrysler. So he made this beautiful film, it's quite different to the other, uh, what we call direct filmmaking, was where he's working directly onto the film. So if you understand the different technologies, this is stop frame animation, which is just um, hand drawn animation. Uh, direct filmmaking is working directly onto the film, on, drawing onto the celluloid, like colour box, colour cry. Uh, and then a film that he made, yeah, exactly. And then um, where uh, they, and they moved, they're only two or three minutes, but this was, no one else was doing this at the time in, in the 20s and 30s. But there was a lo another lovely story where he was working for a film for Chrysler and it was this wonderful film of on the production line. So there's all this black and white footage of people on the production line and there was one moment in it when there was a, um, uh, an African-British person working on the line and he winked at the camera. And as a result of that, that film was banned and never, see, never screened because it was seen as provocative and audacious, even though it won three film awards across Europe. So he was very known at the time as a filmmaker, 
what was interesting is his commissioners were the General Post Office, which was, uh, he did a beautiful film called North or Northwest, which is, are you going to put the right postcode on your letter? And if you don't, your lover won't know how much they love you and, you know, your life will be a disaster. So this kind of very sentimental um, image of the, 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 the girl waiting to receive the letter from her fiancé. So, um, North, yeah. That one's a nice one too. Oh yeah, there's and it North. Brings more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can just flick it along, and it just this is all North by North, you know. So this color color box, and then North by Northwest. Yeah, there it is. So there's you know, so there's um, there's a number of these films that tell little moral stories. So he was interested in storytelling, but also in a completely different visual language. Okay, so we're now up into the the 40s. He's well known as a um, as a filmmaker, he's worked for the Ministry of, um, of Information and Culture, and then he gets an invitation to go to, he's probably about that time, um, he gets an invitation to uh, be a film producer in America and work for Time Warner, before it was Time Warner, called The March of Time. So he was um, in um, being director of this wonderful series, a, um, a series of short segments, like would be a television series now, where he was interviewing people like Le Corbusier and Einstein. So he was meeting all of these artists from 1944. He, sort of, he left the long-suffering Jane and the two children in London and uh, went to um, New York, but when Jane appeared two years later, there was Anne on the scene, and Jane got very upset and went back to London, um, and Anne was really something. Anne was a, you know, a fabulous um, New Yorker who was a real estate agent and basically supported him uh, for the rest of their lives, um, a, a really extraordinary um, woman with enormous energy. Um, and uh, so they, he continued working for time and working with the March of Time and then did, continued making films. Um, a number of films he, he completed in, um, in New York, including a wonderful film called Free Radicals. You can see that one. And, it, and Free Radicals was quite radically different from all the others. It's a black and white scratch. Maybe just look up Free Radicals, yep. Um, and Free Radicals was really different. He worked with Burundi drummers to create the soundtrack. And it was, uh, if you could imagine, like a, a white line scratched directly onto the celluloid. So it was this incredible transition. Yep, there it is. You can, Which one do you want? yep, Free Radical. So any of, any of these and you can, we can just flick through. Oh, you got your system now, this is good. Um, and, uh, and so the incredibly dynamic and very much this kind of fusion between film and sculpture. Film and sculpture and, 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 in, and uh, an immersive environment that involved sound and movement. Uh, in the 60s, um, I think it was 66, he did a presentation at MoMA because he, he, in 52, he made these films. He found it very difficult to make the films, very expensive. These films take two or three years and he wasn't funded to do it and he wasn't supported the way he was in London uh, with the kind of commercial projects and he was wanting to do his own independent work rather than make 
literally advertisements. Um, so he then uh, decided that he, in 1952 he would go on strike from making films and worked in kinetic sculpture. And then he started the second phase of his whole career. So if we go to, yep, sculpture, yep, that's it. <clears throat> okay, so then he started doing these, um, so there's a lovely photo of him amongst his kinetic sculptures. So he thought rather than the difficulty of making film, he would actually start working sculptures. But before he did that, in 1944 and 1945, he did the most beautiful series of photograms of people. So this included people like Man Ray and Le Corbusier. So if we just go back to photograms, um, yep, have a look, just if you can look up photograms. So in this way, he would have, um, he would have these um, individuals would come to his um, studio, he would lay them against the wall, he would uh, put them behind photographic film, uh, photographic paper, flashlight, and, and there we have his plumber who came to fix fix the pipes in, um, and with his plumbing tools. These are extraordinary because they're one-offs. They're not photograms, it's called cameraless photography. There was a big exhibition in New Plymouth a couple of years ago uh, by Geoffrey Batchen with his with, um, based on cameraless photography. And he's really recognised as one of the great, and that's the one of um, Le Corbusier, um, and one of the great um, uh, proponents of cameraless photography. So you can see this is his own self-portrait with his original surrealist uh, photogram uh, interspersed in his, in, within his own brain. Um, and uh, there, so th he did uh, also did a beautiful series. Um, these are called uh, this Anthea with with veil and this gorgeous baby, which is a um, beautiful image. And he did two magnificent photograms of Georgia O'Keeffe as well. So he did about 45 of these, and they're, they're all in the collection. Of course, they're all, you know, one-offs. You know, and there they are on the paper from 44, 45. So the Georgia O'Keeffe one's really great. Um, so, oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So with, um, with a... a with the um, antlers, you know, really something. So here he was hanging out with these people. You can tell the kind of person he was. You know, he was very, very charismatic. Oh, and he loved jazz and he loved to dance. Very important. He, he, he was sort of the bodily manifestation of his ideas about movement. Um, so, um, yeah, so back to kinetic sculpture. And, um, and so he started this idea of sculptures that move. And of course, um, this is 52, and this is kind of pre the kinetic movement really that grew out very much in South America and in, and, um, in New York. So his very first was this series of wind ones. So there's, maybe show that one. That one can give you a sense of it. So there it is in New York, so, uh, sorry, New York, in New Plymouth. New York, New Plymouth, much the same thing. Um, so, uh, so there is the large wind wand, it's 50 metres. It wasn't possible to conceive, uh, to make this 
work to the size that he wanted during his lifetime. But with yachting technology and when New Zealand won the America's Cup, suddenly there was engineers around who could make the, these kind of sculptures. So the wind wand, it looks very still there, but it moves, it's a very, very windy area. And we've actually, when I was in New Plymouth, we actually recorded it do a double flip. So as it's, it's sort of flicking and then um, there was this double undulation. Um, but these, he, the idea of them was in New York and he placed a number of them um, in, uh, in a empty um, apartment block in New York. And, uh, and so the idea that these um, wind wands would be in flocks as well. So if we, yeah, maybe just go with the sculptures good and then let's go with, um, okay. Another series he did were these called Fountain and he did about um, seven of those and uh, they are slowly articulating fronds of stainless steel. And what happened was that he hadn't gone back to New Zealand at all. In 1968, he went back to New Zealand um, and he was interested to show his work there. There was a small group of people. He wanted to show his work at the National Gallery. They weren't interested. And Little Gavette Brewster, which was um, an innovative, dynamic young gallery, um, very new, um, started to have a conversation. It only began in 1970. And in 77, they had the first major exhibition of Len Lai's work. By that stage, his work was in the collection of MoMA, it was in the collection of Whitney, um, the Berkeley Film Archive, particularly his films, a couple of the kinetics, but mainly the films. The kinetics really only at the Whitney and at Berkeley, but the films were in a number of places around the world. But he was still not known at all. In fact, there was a, a, a whole television program called Len Who to let people know um, that uh, about this artist who was really quite pioneering both in America, England and in fact, you know, um, in, in New Zealand. So he came back in 77 for this exhibition and there was a young engineer in, uh, called John Matthews in, in, who was only 24 at the time and beforehand he went over to New York, hung out with Len Lai and said, look, I can make your sculptures the size you want them to be. Len Lai said, great. So um, he worked very hard. He came back to New York, showed Len, uh, Len Lai his plans and Len Lai said, great, but make it twice as big. So then he came back to New Zealand and kept working and that's when he made um, large wind one and also, yeah, just, I think, the yep, sculpture and, um, and that, and and also, uh, yeah, that gives you a, maybe that just gives you a sense of it. That was when it was first presented in 77. And the exhibition was just called Len Lai Kinetic Works. It was a bombshell. It was like hugely successful, thousands of people coming to see the exhibition. And from that moment in 1977, um, the, um, the gallery has, at New Plymouth has shown Len Lai work every year. In 1980, um, he died of leukaemia, but before that time, he bequeathed his entire collection and his archive to New Plymouth because it was, to Gavette Brewster, because it was the place that had um, 
supported him the most and that had appreciated his work. So, um, and then backtracking to 2016, 20, sorry, 2006, uh, I was appointed as the director of Gavette Brewster with the idea that we build a Lenlai Centre. So if you can look up Lenlai Centre. Yeah. So then um, that became quite a big project, which was expanding the Gavette Brewster Gallery to include a dedicated space just to show the work of Len Lai. And that's what, um, and that's what occurred, it opened in 2015. So, um, and the work that I did is work with the architects, appoint the architect, um, find the money. <laughs> so, um, so find the money and, uh, oh, yeah, so any of these here. Um, and so this is the main street of New Plymouth, a tiny little town of 70,000 people with this incredibly spectacular building in it. Uh, the architect was very clever. He's a guy called um, Andrew Patterson, and he said what we need to do is make uh, the, the, the work out of... Um, let me go back to my centre. Maybe just pull that and just show a whole... Yeah. Just show a whole lot of, from the Lenlai Centre is work with natural materials, local materials. And the local materials were stainless steel because it's um, white gold, black gold, so it was oil and gas and, uh, the, um, and the dairy industry. And so stainless steel was the local material and also concrete because of all of the, those two industries in particular. And so, yeah, that gives you a, a good, a really good image of it. So it's built on the corner. This is the original building here, 13 metres high. The idea of the building too, the architect defined this really well, was one, the best place in the world to experience the, the work of Len Lai, and that means the sculptures plus the film. So there's a beautiful bespoke 80-seat cinema as well. And that is showing on film, not just on digital. And also uh, to be a space that is uh, sympathetic to the contemporary art nature of Gavette Brewster, and also to be a place that is destinational and something that the city could be proud of, because the city, uh, the city government refused to put any money into it at all, so we had to raise the entire budget from outside the city, which we did. Um, so, um, and then it was built in 2015. So, um, there it is in the twilight. <laughs> uh, it's a very simple building, really. It's, um, it's a concrete box uh, that is, uh, doesn't allow ex exterior light inside. However, this space around the outside becomes a kinetic sculpture because there's fragments of, of, um, of glass in between and the light bounces between the stainless steel. So you can see the outside as your inside and you can see the inside outside. And it's like the flickering of the 24 frames per second that happens as you move around. Uh, and um, so it's, it has a, it's very simple. It's an education space. It's a very large um, space, which I'll show you. Um, which one's this? My sculpture. Uh, this one here, I think, shows you. Yep. So that shows you the kind of um, large space, you know, which is sort of 
seven metres high where these large sculptures can, can be installed. Um, and so there's hydraulics in the roof and hydraulics in the floor so things can come up from below and things can come from above. And then, it's, and then there's another very large space that's completely adaptable that can be used for whatever kind of artwork, whether it be film or paintings, whatever. What, through this process, um, we worked, because of the collections that are in MoMA and various other places in the world, we went through a whole process of conservation as well. So, for example, um, there was a film called Old Souls Carnival that had never been seen. It needed to be restored and we worked with MoMA and found it in their archives and then restored it with, um, with MoMA. Um, also, um, uh, to Salava uh, has been, historically, it's often screened the wrong way around. So there's all of these images that exist out there in the world where it's the wrong way around. So historically, um, hello, how are you? <laughs> what do you like? Huh? <laughs> you like what? You like chalks? Sharks. 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 You're in the right place. <laughs> so, um, so uh, now what um, the situation is, is whenever you go to New Plymouth, you will see Len Live. That is the attraction. So that there will always be a, a Len Live exhibition on display. Uh, when I started at the gallery, there were 17 working kinetics. Um, sorry, when I started at, the, at, at Gavette Brewster, there were seven working kinetics. So I had to, you know, raise millions of dollars and create this whole museum for seven sculptures. By the time I left, we had 17 working kinetics, and that is that was enough because in his lifetime, he couldn't... The technology wasn't up to speed with his ideas. So um, it's taken this, this lineage, this legacy of the Len Life Foundation to actually realise the sculptures to that level. There are still a lot of people in the world that recognise him more as a filmmaker than a kinetic artist because his films were created during his lifestyle. They were all radical in their own way, each one testing out a completely different kind of methodology. Um, and the... Uh, but really, in New Zealand, he is super loved as a kinetic artist. In Europe, he is really respected as a filmmaker. Um, so it's interesting, when you go to Wikipedia, it barely mentions his kinetic sculptures, and yet he's so known as a kinetic um, sculptor, because some of these works, these are very beautiful, they're very elegant, they're very, very um, sensuous. Others, like um, Flip and Two Twisters, is incredibly dangerous. It is this flicking uh, stainless steel, three flicking spinning stainless steel pieces that bang against um, and create this kind of whirling sound in the space. And uh, so there, the engineering is really important to get it right because of the, the kinetic power involved with some of these pieces. So there is a um, final story want to tell you is um, if you look up um, Roundhead. Roundhead. And Roundhead is a really elegant, tiny, beautiful, delicate work. There's, I think, three versions of it. And uh, it's a very simple sculpture. You can see it here. Okay, it's only about that big. This, this circle rotates 
as the, the other two circles. So obviously, this was a time when he was very influenced by all the research in out of space. As you know, it's 50 years this year since man landed on the moon. That was during his lifetime. And, uh, and there it is sort of in motion. Start to see it in a time lapse. It has a tiny little music box inside, so it's just playing this tinkling little sound. And in the middle of Roundhead is a gold ring. So he was working on this piece, and he was, um, and he was, and he he ran home to. Um, he thought of something. He was working in the studio, and then he he yelled up to Anne on the other floor and said, "Anne, throw me your wedding ring, which he'd bought." very cheaply at a local store. And she threw down the gold wedding ring and the gold wedding ring went into that sculpture. And uh, she had to buy her own replacement wedding ring. But it's probably the most poignant and beautiful um, of his sculptural works. And in a lot of ways makes that correlation uh, you know, between film and sculpture. I'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs>